Khuni, The Crimes of India is a thoroughly researched podcast that uses publicly available documents, reports and books and associated media to provide listeners with a complete picture of the week's case. The following content is often graphic and regularly uncomfortable. Mentions of assault, bodily harm and death may follow. Khuni, The Crimes of India does not condone any actions mentioned in the episode. Minors are advised to exercise caution before proceeding. Thank you. Namaskaram, welcome back to another Khuni episode. This is Aditi from Lucknow and joining me over the interwebs is Neha, all the way from Hyderabad. Hey. Hey lovelies and hello Aditi from 1995. How are we doing today? (laughs) Is it because I said interweb? I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, uh, I don't know about you but I think it's a bit of a challenge slipping back into work from lazy long vacation mode. Well, vacation from the podcast, you mean. Everything else has been going on as usual. Everyone for my work has returned from vacation and it's hectic business as usual as everyone finally figured out how to work from home. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. Uh, Now we have to go back. But it is good to settle into the groove again. Uh, We are thrilled to bring you guys part two in the saga of Asaram. So... Part 1 had ended with the curious deaths of the Vagela brothers and the two little boys at the Chidwara Ashram. The DK Trivedi Commission set up to inquire into the deaths of Deepesh and Abhishek did not hold Asaram directly responsible but only stated that there was negligence on the part of the Gurukul administration. But all the depositions before the DK Trivedi Commission revealed a disturbing pattern of criminal impunity displayed by Asaram. The deaths in his gurukuls were bad enough, but several witnesses who were interrogated also talked about a toxic culture where sexual exploitation was rampant. So we've mentioned Raju Chandak in the previous episode as one of the witnesses to testify against Asaram. Raju Chandak was associated with the ashram for almost 20 years. He even donated a lot of his property to the ashram and had been an administrator of the Ahmedabad ashram. He testified that a 17-year-old daughter of a widowed follower had once confided in him about being seduced by Asaram. Later, he had also caught Asaram himself in a quote-unquote compromising position with another woman. Eventually, he became very disillusioned with the godman and left the ashram altogether. He was adamant that sexual exploitation was pervasive there. Amrit Prajapati was an Ayurvedic practitioner. He used to oversee herbal formulations produced and sold by Asaram, basically all the Ayurvedic medicines. And he was also his personal physician. He also confirmed the sexual exploitation stories. Although he maintains that a lot of Asaram's sexual liaisons were voluntary. Even the 17-year-old girl we mentioned uh, who confided in Raju Chandak, she said that she hadn't been forced and she said that she had been blessed and that it was her prasad. Ew. Ew, ew, why do all these godmen have the worst, worst <laughs> euphemisms for sex? This is just too much. Gross. Yeah, also they justify their wandering eye syndrome with the same mythology. 
Oh, oh, let me guess. He was Krishna and all the women he slept with were the gopis? Exactly. I'm already getting tired of explaining that lore to our non-Hindu followers though. I know, every time we cover one of these godmen, it's the same old story. Yeah, like get a new story, asshole. Compare yourself to something else. So it is clear that Asaram was grooming these young girls. It is safe to assume that even in cases where sex was non-consensual, Asaram managed to silence his victims by either threatening them or offering them money. Plus, this is a major stigma for women in India. So many parents would have ordered their daughters to hush it up themselves. So in the previous episode, we told you the story of four male students in Asaram's Gurukuls uh, from two different states who met with the same fate. Now we will talk about another Gurukul student, this time a 16-year-old girl, let's call her Jane Doe, uh, since she was a minor and we don't know her name. So Jane Doe was a student at the Gurukul in Asaram's Chindwara Ashram in Madhya Pradesh. Her older brother was also a student at the Gurukul. They both came from a very simple middle-class family from Shahjahanpur in UP. Her father owned some trucks and he had a transport business. Her family had a long association with Ashram for almost 11 years. Like most of Asaram's long-term followers, they too donated a lot of money to the Ashram. And according to the girl, her father even took loans to get a small Ashram built at Shahjahanpur at one point. Isn't this heartbreaking? Middle-class families in India take loans for the big things in their lives, like education, marriage, or building a house. If they're going into a debt for a guru, imagine the psychological hold this idiot must have had on his followers. I know, and it's not even about the money, right? Yeah, it's very sentimental, you know, for most Indians. Yeah. Anyway, Jane Doe told the police that her ordeal began on 2nd August 2013 when she started feeling very sick. After two days of feeling unwell, she collapsed in her class from sheer weakness. Her classmates carried her back to her room and laid her on the bed. They called the hostel warden Shilpi Gupta. Once again, we see the same delaying tactics we had seen before. So Jane Doe was not taken to a hospital. She was not given any medicines. She just stayed in her room without any medical attention for two more days. And on the third day, she was taken to see the director of the ashram. So Jane Doe recalls seeing another girl sitting in the director's room. And Shilpi and the director told her that this girl was possessed by evil spirits. And then both of them looked at Jane Doe and told her that just like this girl, she too was possessed by evil spirits. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if it wasn't so tragic, I'd laugh. But yeah. For the next couple of days, Jane Doe was forced to recite mantra and perform religious rituals. And during this time, she also developed a stomach ache. So her condition was getting worse. Mm-hmm. But despite all the pain, she was not allowed rest or even sleep. And she was made to sit through a long, drawn Mahamrityunjaya jap. Okay, if you don't come from a religious Hindu family like mine, Mahamrityunjaya mantra is dedicated to Shiva and normally people will recite it to tide over sickness or ward off imminent death. You know what else treats sickness? Yeah, a doctor, <laughs> fucking medicine, some rest and sleep. Yep. So unsurprisingly, Jane Doe's condition did not improve. Eventually, Shilpi Gupta told her that she needed to contact her brother, who was also a student at the Gurukul, and her parents. They were supposed to take her to Asaram himself. Evidently, he had been informed about her possession and he had agreed to meet and help her. 
So Jane Doe called her brother on 7th. Her parents arrived next day on 8th, but were only allowed to meet her uh, on 9th. Shilpi was present when they all met, so she never had a moment alone with her parents. And the parents were fed the same story as well, that their daughter had fallen ill and that it was all because of evil spirits. And with this information, the family was now told to visit Asaram wherever he was. Okay, I'm just amazed at how everyone seems to readily believe that this girl was possessed by evil spirits. Was there no one who questioned this? Not one person? Were they even educated? What is happening? I mean, I think because they're all so brainwashed, right? It is hard for outsiders to understand this. But when you're in it, I mean, that's how it is. Yeah. Anyway, at this point, let's talk about the Shilpi woman for a bit. Shilpi Gupta came from an affluent family. Her background was similar to Jane Doe because her family too had a long association with Asaram. Her father was an income tax officer. She herself had a master's degree in psychology. She had given up her career to work at the ashram. And she had recently been appointed warden at Chindwara, less than a month before Jane Doe fell sick. And remember this detail because it is important. Coming back to the story, Shilpi told the parents to find and meet Asaram. This proved to be tougher than expected. Her parents had to contact a man called Shiva, Asaram's personal aide, to locate him. First, Shiva told them that Asaram would be in Delhi. They reached Delhi on 12th August only to realize that Asaram was in Jodhpur. So then, the family left for Jodhpur and reached on 14th August 2013. That's almost 12 days since this girl started feeling sick. She has still not received any medical attention so far. I know, I know. So anyway, the family reached Asaram's ashram located in a small village near Jodhpur called Manain. Also, ashram is not ashram, by the way. Typically, ashrams are like... Even Asaram's followers used to call places like the, like, like this uh, Kutia. Kutia is supposed to be like a small mud hut kind of thing. It's supposed to be austere and it's meant for meditation and religious studies. Asaram's so-called Kutia is a plush two-storied house complete with a swimming pool in the farmhouse of a wealthy follower called Vishnu Deoda. It doesn't get more posh than this. Wow, swimming pool, what the... F- anyway, so... Much to the relief of this family, they are finally granted an audience with Asaram. They tell him that they were asked to meet him. He realizes that this is the girl who has been possessed by demons. He climbs down from his perch and walks up to her, takes some water from a copper vessel and splashes the water on her face. He then smiles at Jane Doe and casually asks her about her studies. She tells him that her studies are going fine. Later on at night, as he is strolling in the garden with the whole family, he asks her what she plans to do with her life. She tells him she wants to be a CA when she grows up. Asaram scoffs at this idea. He tells her, what will you do by becoming a CA? They're all sitting at my feet. Become a teacher. (laughs) (laughs) This is basically what Shilpi the warden also did. She abandoned a career to serve at the gross feet of this gross man. Yeah, I wonder if he gave Shilpi the same pep talk. Yeah. So, anyway, the next morning, Jane Doe and her family attended the satsang with everyone else. They were told to meet Asaram privately after the satsang concluded. This was probably around 10 a.m. He explained the various rituals needed to cure Jane Doe to the family. 
Then he separated the daughter from her family. The parents were asked to sit in the garden, a little further away from the kutia, and pray. Jane Doe was asked to first sit near the stairs that led to Asaram's room, and then later he opened the back entrance of his room and asked her to come in. Jane Doe told the police that the room was almost completely dark except for some of the light from outside filtering in. She was asked to sit on Asaram's bed. Asaram held her hand and started massaging it. She got very uncomfortable and tried to pull away, but he wouldn't let go at first. Eventually, he did. But then he also started lecturing her that she would have to finish the rituals, otherwise she would never be cured of the evil spirits inside her. Jaindo became very quiet. He started kissing her all over her face. She started crying, but he covered her mouth with his hand. Then he took his clothes off, forced himself on her, and sexually assaulted her for almost an hour. When he was done, he warned her not to breathe a word about what had happened in that room to anyone. That if she said anything at all, he would have her family killed. He then told her to go back where she came from. Jane Doe left, went back to her own room and just slept. She was in shock. Her family had devoted the past 11 years of their life to this man. They practically worshipped him. She talks about becoming almost catatonic with pain. She couldn't sleep. She couldn't eat anything. She didn't feel like talking to anyone. And when finally she came back to Shah Jahanpur with her family, she was able to muster a little bit of courage. One day, her mother walked in with a plate of food and asked her daughter why she'd been so quiet. And she asked her why she wasn't joining them when they were doing their daily puja of Asaram. She yelled at her mother that Asaram was a fraud and a badmash. And then she broke down and told her mother everything. Her family was enraged. They immediately went to Delhi where Asaram was holding court to confront him. But his security detail did not allow them in. This is when they decided to go to the police. The initial FIR was filed at the Kamla Market Police Station, uh, which was the nearest police station. According to some reports, the police were incredulous at first because they thought that a respected godman could never commit rape. And then they wondered why a report was being filed in Delhi when the incident had taken place in Jodhpur. Other accounts, including the one in the book, Gunning for the Godman, maintains that the police were in fact prompt and registered the complaint immediately. I'm assuming that the truth is somewhere in the middle. So then Jane was taken to a hospital for a medical examination, which revealed that she had indeed been sexually assaulted. However, it is important to note that according to her own testimony, she had been subjected to oral sex and digital penetration. This will come up later, so keep in mind it's important. And then the next day, she was produced before a magistrate to formally record her statement. Which is amazing, no? So far, it seems like Asaram had this force field around him that immediately repelled law enforcement. But now, uh, that seems to be melting away. I don't know, Aditi. You know, you actually might be overstating how amazing this was. Because <laughs> this is August 2013. This is like six or seven months barely after uh, Jyoti Singh's case. Yeah. And this is Delhi. Everyone was taking sexual assaults seriously. Also, why is it amazing that Delhi police basically just did their jobs? I'm from UP, dude. I'm always amazed when the police do their jobs. <laughs> anyway, once this was done, <laughs> Jane Doe and her family were taken to Jodhpur because that's where the crime had taken place. And again, I am happy to say that the Jodhpur police also took this very seriously. Asaram's law-repelling force field was getting weaker and weaker. But it's not like he didn't resist though. 
As soon as the FIR was registered in Jodhpur, Asaram had sent his lawyers to the police station to intimidate the officers. They wanted to know if Asaram would have to appear before the police so that they could apply for anticipatory bail. <laughs> I have not seen anticipatory bail being abused anywhere as yeah. much as Asaram and his goons did. Every time the police took any action against them, they would apply for anticipatory bail immediately. This also happened when seven people were arrested for the Vagela brothers' deaths back in 2008. So the police teams were dispatched to various ashrams all over India to gather evidence. The most important, of course, had to be the Chindwara ashram where Jane Doe was a student. Mukta Parekh was an SHO at the time. She and her husband, who was also a police officer, went undercover to the Chindwara ashram to gather intel. They learnt about other girls from other parts of the country who had abruptly left the ashram, some right before their exams. But when these families were contacted, nobody was willing to talk to the police. We think of Jane Doe's parents in this context, right? It mm-hmm. looks like so many yeah. girls had been victimized and their families were even are too scared to even talk. Imagine the courage it must have taken for this family. Yeah, seriously. Oh my God. People think it's so easy to report sexual assault in this country. Nobody, nobody realizes that this act of just reporting a sexual assault is just so traumatic for the victim. Yeah, and in Gunning for the Godman, uh, Jane Doe is recounting her thought process during the assault, right? To the police officer who's taking her statement. She said that she was afraid of so many things. First of all, the fact that this man was in a position of power over her because he was a 72-year-old religious behemoth and she was just a 16-year-old girl. Her parents used to worship this man. They're devoted to him. And even as he's assaulting her, she's thinking to herself, if I resist, my parents might get angry. I mean, it is insane. Yeah, this is just, this whole power dynamic is so fucked up. Yeah. Also, I think Ajay Lamba makes a note of this in his book, he writes about being relieved that the family was not allowed to meet Asaram in Delhi. He may have been actually able to intimidate them like he had done with countless others. As soon as he became aware of the complaint, Asaram unleashed a PR blitzkrieg. He already had a public relations office attached to the ashram, which went into overdrive, discrediting the allegations leveled against Asaram and whining about how there was a national conspiracy to malign the Baba. (laughs) Soon enough, they started alleging that this so-called conspiracy was not just against Asaram, but against all Hindus. See, for a very long time, Asaram had positioned himself as a vanguard of Hindu religion in India. If you go to his YouTube page or his website, you're going to find a lot of videos on Hindu culture or westernization of Hindu culture or how foreign NGOs are using the media to defame Hindu culture, etc., etc., For instance, he does not like Indians celebrating Valentine's Day, which he deems a corrupting Western influence. Instead, he says youngsters should use this day to worship their parents. He calls it the Matri Pitri Poojan Divas, which literally translates to worshipping your parents' day. There is this really cringe-inducing poster for this, which is on his website. We're going to put it up on our socials. So basically, two kids are sitting at their parents' feet, right? With their head resting in their lap. And there's a little girl literally doing Aarti of Asaram. I mean, everyone has a creepy smile. It is very disturbing. Yeah, very disturbing. Yeah. 
and then there are so many videos of parent worship day on their website they're doing this in schools and what not <laughs> and in one video they have compiled sound bites from all different politicians and sportsmen etc and i kid you not they got govinda to endorse their shitty festival which is a huge get i'm actually impressed yeah seriously also bhai in 2019 bhupinder singh chudasama who was the education minister of gujarat wrote to asaram who was in prison by the way extending his best wishes for organizing matri pitri pujan divas that year and had <laughs> and he congratulated them for doing a great work in making young boys and girls and unmarried men and women better citizens of india <laughs> and i kid you not i saw a photograph of that letter it is in gujarati but it is written on an official government letterhead yeah <laughs> yes so needless to say i mean asaram has very puritanical views on relations between men and women in general apparently premarital sex is taboo sex and festivals is also taboo even between a husband and his wife yeah apparently insert that hypocrisy ki seema wala meme here hypocrisy ki bhi seema hoti hai also remember the war on christmas they replaced it, they replaced christmas with tulsi puja divas tulsi is a sacred plant for hindus basically it's a variety of basil and you'll find one in most hindu homes every year asaram's minions will trend tulsi pujan divas <laughs> or tulsi pujan day on twitter on the 25th of december and it's the same hackneyed message this is a country of saints not santa <laughs> <laughs> anyway so in all seriousness and this is not very well known but his followers used to attack missionaries especially in adivasi areas around 2003 4 jhabua in mp was highly communally sensitive and during those tensions a minor adivasi girl was raped and murdered and she was a student of a missionary school so immediately without even an inquiry with no proof local sanghis started blaming christians for this and this was eventually proven to be false but asaram's followers barged into the convent and beat up the nuns over this issue plus him and his family host so called shuddhi ceremonies where christian and muslims are asked to quote and quote reconvert to hinduism i don't know how any hindu can cry about evangelism when all this nonsense is going on i mean this is this is like their broader agenda to sanskritize uh, adivasis because they see missionaries as competition and when they when i mean they i mean the whole right wing not just asaram yeah he also has a lot of opinions on new year celebrations <laughs> you can check out videos on his website asking where he's asking ominously does our indian culture allow us to celebrate this type of new year there is some footage of people partying and all and there is asaram just basically dissing western culture <laughs> and just like <laughs> every right wing nutcase in this country right now asaram too started gatekeeping hindu culture he convinced his followers that he was just trying to protect hinduism from western onslaught he and by the way he has a very very wide uh, umbrella for what is western for example meat eating is a western thing please <laughs> vegetarianism is southern propaganda that's all Yeah, tell us followers. <laughs> also, he has a problem with dancing in discos and pubs. Oh yeah, apparently because they cause knee pain in the long run. <laughs> Legit that is. Well, here's a fact. So does being eighty. <laughs> <80. laughs> 
I don't know if he was simply riding the Hindutva wave in the country or it was a side effect of being from Gujarat. I mean, I'm sorry, Gujaratis who listen to our show, Gujarat is a wonderful place. But you folks cannot deny the rampant anti-Islamic sentiment prevalent there, okay? Although I am from UP and I have no right to point fingers, but I hope you guys get my point. It could also be his way of winning favours from the BJP government in Gujarat. It definitely paid him dividends. When this whole incident became public, it did not take long for his followers to sound the all-too-familiar war cry of Hindu khatre mein hai or Hindus are in danger. And right on cue, the usual suspects chimed in with their opinions. Uma Bharti lost no time in dismissing this as a conspiracy by the Congress. The leader of the Vishwa Hindu Parishad, Praveen Togadia, also claimed that Asaram was innocent. And apart from these two, Prabhat Jha, who was a Rajya Sabha MP from BJP and BJP Vice President at the time, also jumped to his defence. Wow, just wow. This just seems like such a deja vu. Yeah. Keep in mind, this was election year and not just any ordinary election year either. Again, Nirbhaya incident had happened just a few months earlier and at the time Congress had been attacked by BJP for its failure to protect women in the streets. So, Modi ji probably realized his own party men siding with a rape accused, that too of a minor, was not a good look. So, in August 2013, India Today reported that Modi had warned BJP members to stop defending Asaram. What can you say about a party in which... Modi is the voice of reason. I can't believe I just said these words. Nothing. You can't say anything. You can just cry silent tears for the country that keeps voting this party into power. Anyway, sorry guys, we got a bit sidetracked here. But let's talk about Asaram's behavior after the allegations came to light. In Gunning for the Guardman, Ajay Lamba talks about how during his investigation, many well-placed politicians bureaucrats and police officers would call and either directly or indirectly threaten him to drop the investigation. He was even offered bribes. And it wasn't just him. Other members of the team that he had put together to nab Asaram got many, many threatening calls or offered bribes. One of the men arrested in connection with the case involving Nara and Sai revealed that he had been told to kill ACP Chanchal Mishra. Misha was a key investigating officer and a valuable member of the team. She was the liaison between Jane Doe and her family and the police. Over time, they had come to rely on her a lot and she had even built a strong relationship with Jane Doe. The man tasked with killing her was planning to plant an IED device in her vehicle and blow her up. She had to be provided security eventually. Lamba himself was abused and harassed not just over the phone but also physically. Asaram's followers stooped low enough to target his home and family. They were caught loitering outside his home. A group of his followers also reached Lamba's native village in Rajasthan. They were quickly caught and handed over to the police and were thankfully not able to harm his parents who still lived in the village. But this is such a scary situation. His wife was so terrified that she stopped sending their daughter to school for a few days. Lamba says that this intimidation went on even after Asaram had been arrested and was facing trial. Even when Lamba had been transferred. One guy even called a bomb threat at Udaipur airport when Lamba was there. You can actually read all this in detail in his book. We honestly cannot recommend it enough. 
Yeah. So the police investigation into Asaram was resisted from the very beginning, which is not a surprise to anyone. By August 25th, 2013, Asaram had landed in Indore and was lying low in his ashram on the pretext of Ekantwas. Yeah, again, for people like me who don't know any of this, Ekantwas is when people isolate themselves for meditation or religious studies. Needless to say, this is just a gimmick in this case. On August 25th, 2013, a team from Rajasthan police reached Indore to serve him summons to appear before them in Jodhpur and defend himself against all these allegations. So bear in mind, he was not being arrested at this point. To the young Gen Z kids listening to our podcast, this is what due process looks like. This is what Muslims, Dalits, Adivasis and other dissenters are not allowed anymore. Anyway, so when the police reached the ashram gate, they were not allowed to go inside by the guards. Plus, a large crowd of protesters gathered inside the ashram. They were shouting slogans and they were ready for violence. It took the team eight hours to get the summon through to Asaram. He promised that he would be in Jodhpur by 29th, but obviously he did not come. Oh, by the way, among the crowd of protesters at this ashram protesting the summons was a man called Ramesh Mandola, He was an MLA and a BJP member. Of course, I'm beginning to think it was not a coincidence that he fled to a BJP ruled state to evade questioning. No, of course not. Anyway, so his son issued a statement, quote, "Babu has booked a flight ticket to Delhi. He can't fly now due to his ill health. He will appear before the police as soon as he gets well. He will cooperate with interrogators, all of which is a load of shit." Right. So the Rajasthan police had to move forward with the plan to arrest Asaram. They had been conducting surveillance on the ashram for a long time. Undercover officers were already present there, though many people in the ashram were beginning to suspect them. Indore police had been informed and had promised to cooperate. But there was one problem. Asaram had disappeared. Nobody had any idea how. He had fled to Gopal to escape the arrest. Ajay Lamba had issued a lookout circular for Asaram, so if he was spotted at any airport, the police would be informed immediately. That is how they found him. Besides the police, the media also found Asaram. It was becoming harder and harder for him to escape, so he decided to come back to Indore after all. Apparently, when the police were finally granted audience with him, Asaram is said to have asked tell me why are you here <laughs> god the nerve on this guy even now he is really thinking that he is going to get away with all this oh yeah 100% he actually told the arresting officers that they couldn't arrest him they would soon get orders from above not to arrest him ajay lamba writes how asaram was bluffing there but think of all the threats and the bribes lamba and his team were offered and all the influential people who called him to leave the case he was most definitely not bluffing when the police team refused to budge he finally told them okay we can leave in the morning to which the team initially agreed but they realized this was a ruse asaram called his son and told him in sindhi to gather more followers in the morning to block their exit he had no plans to get arrested at all and he was willing to risk the lives of both his followers and the policemen to make that happen unfortunately for him though one of the police officers understood sindhi 
and immediately let Lamba know about Asaram's plans. Lamba realized that they had to arrest and leave that very night no matter how late it was. So basically their exit plan was to keep the followers thinking that Asaram would be taken out through the front gate of the ashram. Most of the police along with the riot control equipment was stationed there. Meanwhile, Indore police had arranged for a bulldozer to raise the rear wall so that the team with Asaram could leave from there while the followers were distracted. Even though Asaram's bhakts basically rioted when he was being taken away, the police managed to secure him and leave. It was a very nail-biting situation. One of the officers, Mukta Parikh, was accidentally left behind while the police were escaping. For some time, no one knew where she was or if she was safe. She and her husband had been undercover, but the followers would probably have figured out her identity by now. These were very tense moments. But later, they found out that she was safe and sound after all. So what we are telling you here is a very short version of what happened, mainly because we have to talk about other stuff as well, besides the investigation. All the details are in Lamba's book. Once again, please, please go ahead and read it. So besides Asaram, three other people were also arrested. Shilpi the warden, Sharad the personal aide who had been contacted by Jane Doe's parents when they had to get in touch with Asaram, and a man called Prakash. Prakash was Asaram's cook and acted as his middleman. It came to light that nothing that happened to Jane Doe was accidental. Um, yeah, Diti, I don't think anybody was thinking that sexual assault was accidental. Not the sexual assault. I'm talking about sexual assault of Jane Doe specifically. Right, right, right. Yeah, we mentioned multiple times now that there was a culture of sexual exploitation at the ashram. Many people had testified that in front of the DK Trivedi Commission as well. Asaram had a weakness for young girls just like Jane Doe. And he had put in place a whole machinery to make sure that he got what he wanted or who he wanted. Asaram would spot the girls he wanted during his satsangs. He would have some designated female followers or sevikas, as they were called, present at these satsangs as well. When he found a girl he liked, he would throw her a flower or something sweet or prasad or something. And this would be a secret signal to his sevikas. Once they zeroed in on the girl Asaram wanted, they would start dropping hints and start brainwashing these girls. Sometimes the girl would be so brainwashed already that they were willing to go to him uh, by choice. Other times they were told that they are possessed by demons or evil spirits and Asaram needed to perform rituals on them to cure them, which is exactly what happened to Jane Doe. Ugh, I need to cleanse myself after hearing this. But yes, please go on. So Asaram had first seen Jane Doe in an ashram in Haridwar during one of these satsangs way back in March 2013. At this time, Shilpi was working at the Motera ashram. She was transferred to Chindwara where Jane Doe was studying solely so she could put Asaram's plan into action. That is why I said that this was not a coincidence. It wasn't like Jane Doe fell sick and Shilpi saw her opportunity. Shilpi was definitely there to keep an eye on Jane Doe from the very beginning. Do you think they did something to make her sick? Yeah, so I thought about that, but I didn't find anything to confirm this, not even in Jane Doe's testimony. But yes, it is awfully suspicious that she fell sick so conveniently for their plan to work. Clearly, this was a conspiracy. Call records of Sharad, Shilpi and Prakash revealed that they had been in touch with uh, each other a lot before and after the incident. 
Shiva especially had been in touch with Asaram the whole time. Call records also show that Shilpi had prevented Jane Doe's parents from contacting her when she was sick. All this had taken tons of planning and coordination over several months. They were charged under multiple sections of IPC, POCSO Act and the Juvenile Justice Act. Under the IPC, they were charged with criminal conspiracy under 120B because like we've established, this was all pre-planned. He was also charged with a wrongful confinement under Section 342 because in Manai, he had prevented Jane Doe from leaving his room. He was also charged under Section 376 for rape and rape by a person of trust. This was because as her guru and as someone her parents worshipped as God, he had considerable power over her. Since she had been a student of his ashram, he was also charged under Section 5F of the POCSO Act for aggravated penetrative sexual assault by the management or staff of an education institution or religious institution. There were other charges as well. The final charge sheet was more than 6,000 pages now. Meanwhile, Asaram lost no time in coming after Jane Doe's family. He discredited her story from the very beginning. First, he said that he had never met the girl. Then, he said that he had met her, but never alone. After that, he said that yes, he did meet her alone in his room, but nothing inappropriate had happened. He had only touched her like a grandfather might touch a granddaughter. You, I need to cleanse myself again. What is... I know, it's disgusting. But once he was arrested, his followers started character assassinating her right, left and centre. They said that she was doing this for money or that the whole allegation was just politically motivated. And Jane Doe's life became very difficult. Uh, Asaram's followers filed fake cases of kidnapping and murder against her father. Her family became social outcasts. She couldn't even step out of the house. She had to complete her graduation via distance education. Obviously, the attacks were not limited to Jane Doe's family alone. Critical witnesses in the trial were also attacked by Asaram's goons. We've mentioned Amrit Prajapati before. He was an Ayurvedic physician who left Asaram. Although he was not a direct witness in Jane Doe's case, he had been interviewed as a character witness to establish Asaram's pattern of depravity. He had also testified before the DK Trivedi Commission set up for the Vaghela cousin's death. In May 2014, Amrit Prajapati was shot dead by a man on a motorcycle when he was leaving his clinic in Rajkot, Gujarat. Before this, in March 2014, a man named Dinesh Bhagjandani had acid thrown on his face. But his attackers were overpowered by him and some onlookers. Bhagjandani was a crusader against Asaram and used to provide financial legal aid to people fighting him. In January 2015, a man called Akhil Gupta was shot dead in Muzaffarnagar in UP. He had been a cook and aide of Asaram. He was not a witness in the Jodhpur case, but in a different case of sexual assault that came to light in October 2013. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Rahul Sachan was also an Ayurvedic practitioner. He was, in fact, a key witness in Jane Doe's trial. In February 2015, as he was leaving the session's court during the trial, he was stabbed. Sachan was a resident of UP and after his attack, he went into hiding. He was given police protection as well. On November 25th, 2015, he just suddenly went missing. And since this is UP, needless to say, they botched up this investigation massively by lodging a missing person's complaint only a whole month 
after his disappearance. He is still missing and no one has any idea where he is. We've also mentioned Mahendra Chawla in part 1. He too was a key prosecution witness in Jane Doe's trial. He had been granted police protection by this point. Uh one day when he was in Panipat and his guards had left their post for just a small window of time, he was immediately shot at. Meaning all these people were being actively stalked by Asaram's followers. Chawla thankfully survived. The third witness to die during this trial would be Kirpal Singh. He was shot at on 10th July 2015 in Shahjahanpur UP. He passed away the next day. He was murdered by a man called Narayan Pandey. A man called Karthik Haldar would eventually be arrested for the murders and the attempt on Mahendra Chawla's life. Haldar was a religious fanatic. completely brainwashed into thinking that all these people were giving false statements to trap and blackmail Asharam he told the police that he hadn't even been paid by Asharam he was going around killing people voluntarily to avenge his bapu if that doesn't terrify you i don't know what will when dinesh bhagjantani had overpowered his attacker he found a hit list with six names on it in the attacker's pocket The names were Raju Chandak, Amrit Prajapati, Rahul Sachan, Jane Doe's brother, and two uh, former Asaram followers, Narsingh Vatani and Rahul Patel. So Raju Chandak had been attacked way back in 2010 itself after he testified in front of the DK Trivedi Commission, but he survived. Amrit Prajapati is dead, and Rahul Sachan has been missing since 2015. Asaram's silencing tactics generated much debate about witness protection laws in India. A writ petition was filed in 2016 before the Supreme Court by Mahendra Chawla, Akhil Gupta's father and Jane Doe's uh, father and journalist Narendra Yadav. So Narendra Yadav had also survived a murder attempt because of his exposés on Asaram. He was also being sent threatening letters from Kirpal Singh's murderer while the murderer was in prison. Wow. Yeah, so this was overall a very sad state of affairs. the police protection they got was not adequate at all and so a witness protection scheme was developed in 2018 by a ministry of home affairs and this was recognized by the supreme court uh, but it directed that the scheme should be made mandatory in all states and uh, union territories but at the same time the judgment also recognized that legislation was needed to replace the scheme for effective protection of witnesses and that has not been done so far okay so the witnesses we mentioned just now Akhil Gupta and Rahul Sachan were also witnesses in a different rape trial. This had taken place much before the Jane Doe one, but the survivors only gathered the courage to come forward in October 2013. And this was a whole different can of worms. And I think before that, we need to talk about Narayan Sai. We've been mentioning him in passing throughout our episodes. He was Asaram's son, heir apparent, and also the designated train wreck in the family which is saying something for asaram's family no i know so even though he was supposed to take over from his father in the future narayan sai did not have his coat and coat and for the lack of a better word talents asaram was a sanghi goon but at least he was familiar with the hindu scriptures narayan sai never bothered to learn he was so useless that asaram did not even trust him with finances Narayan Sai had to ask for an allowance from his father. His relationship with his father was dysfunctional. Sai felt he was too controlling. 
He was married to Janaki Devi who would later go on to testify in court that she did not have cordial relations with him because he was a womanizer. In his 30s he branched away from his father to establish his own cult. He took some of Asaram's own followers, got himself an entourage, got some land and set up shop. Because that is how you do it. You just get some land, get some followers and decide your <laughs> color and bam you have a cult. <laughs> Yeah. And because every godman conman needs a gimmick Narayan also leaned heavily into the whole Krishna thing he started dressing like the god and he also used to play the flute wait did he color himself blue oh my god <laughs> okay so now according to Ushinor Majumdar he put his female followers to work in building his ashrams and used to regularly sexually exploit them So Narayan Sai and Asaram have disturbingly similar sexual preferences. They both had this hold over a lot of women they slept with. Even with Narayan Sai many women never considered it sexual assault. And you and I were discussing this also, remember? Yeah, dude. How can I forget? How can I forget any of our discussions regarding this great <laughs> topic? Yeah, it's just that I know we pick up a lot of habits from our parents by watching them, but how does anyone pick up sexual behavior from their parents? I mean, this is not a genetic thing. <laughs> <laughs> Narayan Sai either saw his father doing it or worse, they had a chat about it. Or even worse, this was normalized in the ashrams, and this is all little Sai knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so gross. Anyway, Sai's whole thing was that he wanted every female follower to be treated like a goddess. They were worshipped in the ashram. So a lot of women instantly felt very indebted to him because they felt that he was elevating their stature. And I suppose many of these women would have come from conservative families which are notoriously bad at treating their women like human beings. So for them to be suddenly treated like devis is a massive deal. Yeah. Yeah. So with this background let's talk about two sisters who came forward with their story in October 2013. A lot of this is taken from a Caravan article titled Crisis of Faith: The Nightmarish Struggle to Bring Asaram to Justice. It will be linked in our show notes. Uh, please check it out. Although I think it is probably behind a paywall. So, we will start with the younger sister's story. She came to the ashram when she was 16 years old in the year 2000. Ashram meant Narayan Sai's ashram in Surat not Asaram's. So during the satsang Narayan Sai uh, did what his own father had done to multiple women and pointed her out in the crowd. His sevikas understood what he meant and zeroed in on the girl. See this is learned behavior. This cannot be something that is inherited. Yeah. Then the sevikas would keep telling this girl that she should devote her life to Narayan Sai and that there was nothing for her in the material world. She was also asked to work on an ashram that was under construction in Meghnagar in Madhya Pradesh. She talks about how she was deliberately isolated from the outside world uh, while working at this ashram, so much so that Narayan Sai even changed her name. He began sexually assaulting her in Surat. Her first escape attempt from the ashram was a failure. She was caught, forcibly confined in the ashram, and she was mercilessly beaten up by Narayan Sai. So the whole treat women as goddess thing just went right out of the window. Then she and her brother hatched another plan to get out. Her brother called the ashram and told them that their mother was very sick and his sister needed to come home. So Narayan Sai allowed her to leave for ten days. 
When she didn't return after 10 days, he bombarded her home with phone calls and abused her and put a lot of pressure on her to come back. Eventually, he said that she needed to come one last time and settle ashram accounts. So she went to Himmatnagar, which is where the ashram was, but thankfully chose to stay with relatives instead of going to the ashram directly. She recalls how Narayan Sai came with his vehicle full of followers outside their relatives' home and yelled at her to come out. Somehow, they left by the time morning rolled around and the girl and her family immediately came back home. While she was home, her older sister came home as well. This was the first time they could talk freely about their ordeal. The older sister had been with the ashram since 1996 when she, was two, when she too was 16. She had initially come to attend a 12-day camp, but Asaram's wife convinced her parents to let her stay on. While her younger sister was being victimized by his son, she had to face Asaram. She told the police that while she was at his ashram in Motera, she had been raped multiple times between 1997 and 2006. Her younger sister's ordeal had lasted four years from 2002 to 2006. The older sister talked about how Asaram's wife and his daughter Bharti were also complicit in her rape. I think the only reason uh, these two sisters could even come forward with their story after such a long time was because they had seen for the first time Asaram getting arrested. And not just getting arrested, but staying arrested. Yeah, Asaram petitioned for bail many, many, many times. But thankfully, the courts kept denying it. They kept in mind how influential and dangerous he was. Eventually, both Asaram and Narayan Sai would be convicted for rape. The investigation into these allegations would also reveal a mountain of shady, unaccounted business dealings. They were responsible for wanton land grabs. Asaram was also a loan shark for small businesses. These businesses were obviously never reported, but um, reams and reams of paper were discovered by the police while hunting Nara inside. So I thought of including these uh, allegations in the episode as well, but this was just too much information. I mean, we're already at 50 minutes, I think. And uh, we figured there are already two fantastic books on the subject. We have referred to them throughout these two uh, episodes. Uh, they provide all the information way better than we ever could. So please, please read them if you're interested in how Godmen earned their moolah. So as of today, Asaram's followers still peddle the conspiracy theories about his conviction. You can find so many of them on Facebook, Quora and wherever else now, Twitter also. Basically all places these Sanghi incels frequent. And from time to time, they will surface on Twitter and you can see them trend once every few months. The most repeated one is that Asaram has been falsely implicated because there was no rape at all. They base these stupid claims on the fact that there was no vaginal penetration, which means there was no semen. But the thing is, after Nirbhaya's case, there were comprehensive criminal law reforms undertaken in India. Among these was a change in the definition of rape. Before this, penetration by penis was necessary to classify an assault as rape. But after this, digital penetration and oral sex were included in the definition as well. You remember what Asaram said about Nirbhaya in 2012? I do. Sadly, yeah. But I think for our listeners, let's just play the clip to remind them. 
अब जिन्होंने गलती की शराबी थे अगर उस कन्या ने सारस्वती मंत्र लिया होता गुरु दीक्षा ली होती तो बॉयफ्रेंड के साथ पिक्चर देखकर जिस किसी बस में घुसती गई अगर घुस भी गई तो छह शराबी थे पांच या छह जो भी थे भगवान का नाम लेती और एक का हाथ पकड़ती तेरे को तुम्हें भाई मानती दो को बोलती भैया मैं अबला हूं तुम मेरे भाई हो धर्म के भाई हो भगवान का नाम लेकर हाथ पकड़ती पैर पकड़ती इतना दुराचार नहीं होता गलती एक तरफ से नहीं होती बेसिकली ही इज जस्ट लेइंग द ब्लेम ऑन द वुमन इन दिस सिचुएशन दैट इफ शी हैड जस्ट बीन हिज फॉलोअर शी नेवर वुड हैव बीन आउट विद अ स्ट्रेंज मैन एट नाइट and that when she was being attacked she should have started praying to god or she should have begged her attackers to stop by addressing them as brothers that if she had done all of this she never would have gotten raped and he said all this even as him and his sons were praying on young women in their ashrams on the regular he was obviously criticized a lot and he later pretended that he had never said anything like this at all which is his excuse for everything apparently to me it is so fitting that the reforms made possible because of her would eventually be used to nail this asshole i mean this is the only tiny sliver of good in this story and this is where we will end it we really hope you like this episode and the series overall hopefully you found out things that you weren't aware of we will be back next week with a very special episode because as you all know we are collaborating with ogilvy on their hashtag dna fights rape hashtag say the evidence campaign so we will bring you another story of how dna helped nail yet another elusive criminal so in the meantime please please rate and review us on apple <laughs> also please follow us or subscribe to us wherever you listen regardless of the platform this is just basically so that you are updated whenever we release something new and from now on we will be giving shout outs to listeners who leave reviews on apple podcasts even if they're negative it's fine just write it there and send us a screenshot on any of our socials or on our email and we will give you a shout out so please do us a solid and do this it really helps us a lot and follow us on all our socials spread the word about us and we'll see you very soon that's obviously next week bye bye bye